We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. I'm your host, Justin Jacobson. This week we'll be discussing esports betting and wagering. Just as a disclaimer, nothing here is intended as legal advice, so all the information is for educational purposes only. Also, we do not necessarily endorse or advocate for gambling or betting, so please proceed cautiously and smartly in these ventures. This week's guest is Justin Delario. Justin is the CEO of Unicorn and the Managing Director of Esports for Intain. Prior to that, he worked at Twitch as the VP of Original Content and the VP of Global Esports after being the head of Global Esports for Razor. Truly an inspirational guy, he previously worked as a senior counterintelligence officer at the U.S. Department of Defense. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. My pleasure. So to start, tell us a little bit past your esports and gaming experience. What was the first game you played and how did you get involved in the esports business? Yeah, sure. I think um, I, I can't even remember the first game I played. I know. I think it probably was something on Nintendo. I remember um, the Top Gun game from Nintendo uh, and a couple other games that my brother would have passed down to me at the time because early on, I think I was just getting every uh, game or console that my brother had. I think the first one that was ever mine was Sega because my older brother had at that point moved out of the house um, and I remember playing a lot of fight, fighting games like uh, like Mortal Kombat on there um, but you know during that time I wouldn't say I had any idea of esports or what competitive gaming might be that didn't really come along until a little later when I got into Warcraft um, early Warcraft, connecting to online servers, competing with random people in Korea, like waking up early to do it hours before I went to high school was uh, probably the first time I ever like even conceptualized playing versus other people to know how, how well you could be, uh, how well you can do, who was better. But uh, fast forward a little bit. It was really, I would say, around um, the early days of kind of Super Smash Brothers Melee, Halo 2, uh, early versions of um, Source and Counter-Strike that I started to pay any attention to the fact that people were uh, playing these games at a high level and coming together in like actual physical locations to host events where people would you know, determine who was the best. And some of that went on before I even heard the word esports or pro gaming. Uh, that eventually evolved to where a lot of us started calling it pro gaming. I heard about the uh, MLG. I went and attended those events. And uh, I think I was just kind of hooked from the you know the first time I ever experienced those events to the extent that despite the fact at the time I was you know getting my college out of the way starting my career 
I was nights and weekends and when possible drawn to those events and then even men starting to get involved entrepreneurially uh, with friends online, running communities, events, content, uh, building teams, building tournaments. And that was something I did for years off and on during the time that I was still working a day job in the military and then followed by the government. But um, it was during that period in the late 2000s there where I was working my government day job and kind of just realized that people were starting to have esports as their full-time day job. And I already done a ton of work in the space. I already kind of knew everyone, um, but I hadn't made that leap yet. But I remember the day that I kind of quit everything I was doing in Washington, D.C., working for the government, and I moved to um, California. And that's when I, I got my start at the, the companies you mentioned earlier. And that's what I've been doing ever since, building some part of esports or uh, building infrastructure around marketing or sales or supporting teams, events, et cetera, building up the content at Twitch. That's, that's really what I've, that's how I've kind of led my path through esports. Amazing. So you've definitely been there at the beginning. So we can definitely put you in that OG status of people. If you, if you say early MLG, you were here before, when it started and you know, that gives me the credit. I know where you're at. Um, so tell us a little about some of your previous work at Razor and Twitch. I know, you know, you had some really unique positions there. Yeah. So Razor was really my first full-time day job in esports at the time. Prior to joining Razor, I was working in the government, but I was running a couple different esports teams as part of its GOSU, which I ran with a group of co-founders where we built online tournament technology, communities, ran tournaments, uh, maintained uh, League of Legends teams, Call of Duty, etc. Um, in all that time period where I was doing the different kind of endeavors in esports, I, of course, made contacts with the various brands that were very early on supporting esports, Razer being one of them, Intel, etc. So when I decided to make the leap full-time into esports, I already had contacts at Razer and as a part of kind of moving to California and uh, looking to make that next step, I was able to uh, identify Razer had an opening for a head of esports in North America. That job is very focused on Razor's outward marketing as it relates to esports and direct support and partnership with a number of teams and players who were kind of the team Razor ambassadors. But it wasn't long after I joined in that capacity at Razor that I took over esports globally. And that at that point, the job expanded from just the marketing arm of esports to going as far as thinking about product development for esports, working directly with players like Faker to uh, develop the the Razer mouse for Faker, designed by Faker, and like marketing that to the community, uh, negotiating a number of team deals, event deals, supporting tournaments. A lot of things at that time were uh, equally supportive of growing the infrastructure in the space as they were marketing. Of course, Razer's objectives were to sell computer product peripherals. That meant putting them in the hands of some of the top gamers in the world and gaining that awareness as it relates to their product's use and hoping that that translates to more um, consumers and players buying those products to be like their favorite pros. Um, but then also um, building um, building the success of esports that would help grow and sustain a business like Razor that so heavily participate in the space. So a lot of investments were direct sponsorship, sales related, marketing heavy, but some were just here's a tournament or here's an event, or here's a piece of content, or here's a player, a team somewhere where we see potential in their uh, involvement in esports further, their uh, ability to exist as a team. We can get in on the ground floor and we can help continue to like 
invest in the infrastructure of esports. So it was a mix of it was really a mix of um, those types of things on a daily basis. And sometimes that meant traveling the world to events and or spending time in LA at team houses at the LCS, going to produce some of our own events at some of the bigger gaming events like Gamescon, PAX East, PAX Prime, uh, and a number of things like that. Amazing. So then you kind of transitioned to Twitch. So what kind of were you responsible for over there? Yeah, so I, I was only at Razor a little over a year and similar story. I uh, have many contacts in, in the growing gaming and esports space at that point. Uh, thinking, uh, wasn't necessarily thinking about leaving Razor, but was talking to some folks at Twitch who were still pretty early days, uh, just you know, going through the Amazon acquisition. And despite the fact that Twitch's DNA is very much in esports, um, even that far into the journey of Twitch, the brand from the time that they pivoted uh, from being Justin TV, uh, Twitch hadn't necessarily had an esports strategy. So esports lived on Twitch. Esports was heavily engaged there. That's where you found all your uh, esports content. But no one at Twitch, um, beyond a number of existing functional departments like partnerships and sales and BD, had really wrapped together one strategy for esports that would be the way that Twitch went ahead and continued to lean in and help this space grow. So myself and some others joined Twitch all at the same moment to be a part of that first ever esports division. Uh, at the time, we had a kind of two-part strategy, which uh, involved third-party content licensing of esports and the subsequent kind of monetization of that content as part of our rights, and first-party esports kind of infrastructure building. Um, that first party side, which I directly ran right from the beginning of joining Twitch, was where we were actually invested in a number of different esports leagues that we wanted to see be successful because that diversified the esports offering on Twitch and helped support you know more teams, more players, more infrastructure to allow monetization to enter into the space. So leagues like Capcom Pro Tour, Tekken World Tour, Rocket League Championship Series, uh, a series of events we did at PAXs called... Um, PAX Arena. These were all actually being produced and operated by Twitch staff, uh, even though it wasn't necessarily our aim at the time to make that overly known. Because if the content and the events grew, uh, then there was more part, uh, more participation, more viewership, and every, and the pie grew for everybody. Uh, and that that kind of lean in first party aspect to the esports building at Twitch was something that lasted a few years. Um, in the time period, we were able to incubate a number of different leagues and opportunities, events, some of which still exist today, like our fighting game leagues, Rocket League Championship Series obviously exists. And um, the plan was always to transition them then over and back to the publishers once we've kind of gone through setting up the infrastructure, almost training them in having their own esports leagues at that point. Um, during that same time, we were, of course, focused across all of the major deals in esports, so keeping Riot engaged and on Twitch, ESLs, DreamHacks, uh, working directly with a number of other game publishers who were trying to start up leagues and then monetize the content. We were early uh, investors in the idea of the Overwatch League, which we saw a lot of um, a lot of potential in, at least infrastructurally. And we did a lot of interesting engagement around that content on Twitch as it relates to having uh, almost like a viewer battle pass mechanic and get extra engagement opportunities. Um, but it was after a few years of driving both sides of that kind of esports coin at Twitch that um, uh, we had kind of 
run out of some of those first party opportunities, new esports leagues we can help incubate and get off the ground and make successful. And I was, we were there with a number of different, um, you know, production and esports operations, competition operations type staff. And it was the start of what I kind of consider the battle royale boom, which really kind of took off with PUBG and later Fortnite. Um, the it was such a popular game category for content on Twitch, but not necessarily immediately directly translating to you know premier esports content. Either way, the the you know RNG nature of the game type allows people of almost all skill levels to meaningfully participate in a competitive match because you all drop in and there's a lot of um, variables that can affect the outcome. And that's where we simultaneously saw the rise of creators on Twitch being really successful in the in the Battle Royale category. And that led us to think about events where, that we can use this additional resource and staff we had uh, that Twitch would support, that creators would participate in. And um, being Twitch and uh, having the benefit of getting to think about all viewers, no matter what channel they're on, is beneficial to Twitch versus maybe a a uh, tournament operator who's independent and needs to think about driving all viewership to one place to monetize their advertisers. And we created something called Broadcaster Royale, which we held at, um, we held, I think, at a PAX and then a TwitchCon. And that transitioned to this idea of creating even more content, sub-series leagues, events where it was about creators of various skill levels competing against each other, leaning in a little bit more to the entertainment of competitive gaming content. And uh, that was how we, um, that's, that's how we started the idea of Twitch Rivals. Um, Twitch Rivals is still going on today. It grew significantly over a couple year period. At one point, I think it had more sponsorship in esports than most all tier one esports and um, uh, tournament operators or game publishers. It was just such a successful format for engaging people. And the content volume was significant across all the different games that were able to run these creator versus creator events. Um, which kind of gave way to our thinking around like what other types of first party content should Twitch be producing that's additive, but that not necessarily subtractive to the creator experience on Twitch. Cause the last thing Twitch wants to do is compete with creators, but, uh, something like Twitch rivals became a platform that any creator can plug into that, you know, once every so often that they get invited or choose to participate in an event and have their content format kind of taken care of that day. And then plus we drive all the viewership to all the creators channels. It's not, it was never really about a single broadcast getting these really peak, large peak views. And we created a number of other content formats kind of based on those concepts. Twitch gaming was born out of that. A lot of different creator gaming focused talk shows, uh, original content such as artificial Twitch's um, Emmy award-winning uh, original content piece. That is a, a sci-fi um Choose, choose the next action style kind of drama. And um, that's what uh, enabled me to kind of transition to not just running the pieces of esports I was at Twitch, but also uh, original content. And because of the approach that we wanted to take to original content where we were supporting virtual production for creators tuning in while operating their own channels, that uh, made it necessary for us to create some additional broadcasting technology which led to starting Broadcaster Solutions Engineering at Twitch. And then um, all of the different engaging formats we were creating across esports and original content meant that we were 
super users of our own Twitch product um, uh, extensions. And that led to taking over the interactive studio team, which built extensions on a daily basis. So by the time I left Twitch, I was involved across a lot of different things. But the the continuity and the one consistent thing I was always involved in there was esports. Amazing. So it definitely sounds like a pretty amazing journey where now you're kind of the CEO of Unicron. So tell us what is Unicron and kind of how it's evolved over time and some of the products that it, you know, works on. Yeah, sure. Well, Unicorn, <laughs> just to make sure we get that right. Unicron, uh, Unicorn, right? I'm from the corn era. So Unicorn, it's a unicorn. We, we roll in with it. Unicorn. Um, with Unicorn, we aim to be uh, the most expansive um, betting and wagering site for video game players. Um, that means that we uh, significantly highlight esports as an aspect of our brand. We love esports. We support esports. We have the most breadth and depth of available esports markets and features in our esports book. Um, but beyond strictly that traditional fixed odds betting on esports, we have traditional sports. We have online casino. Uh, and then we have something that's a little bit our differentiator, which also supports um, competitive video game players, is our skill-based products. Uh, and those are U-Mode and Player vs. Player. Player vs. Player has been around a long time. There's some demand for it from players. It's where a player is able to identify they want to wager against another player directly to play in their favorite game if we support it. But um, what's special about U-Mode is that it's a um, player versus house skill-based wagering product where you can connect your game account and we will identify a, a set of odds that are custom to your own personal results, win or, lo- win or lose, over the course of playing in competitive matches, and whether it's CSGO or League of Legends. And then players are able to um, wager uh, certain amounts uh, up to their limits uh, on their probability to win against the house. And we have some other um, markets that players are able to layer on top of winning, such as number of kills they might get um, and uh all in all, it allows a competitive game player to kind of monetize their ability to uh, play games successfully. And sometimes people lose and the odds change, and sometimes they win a lot and the odds change, but that's why we, we try to layer in those other markets. It's really uh, a, differenti- a differentiator for us and something we plan to continue um, building on. That sounds really interesting. So how does it kind of work? Is it you deposit um, you know, c- currency and then you get in-game currency, or is it all just kind of transactions in dollars? It's all um, real, what we consider kind of real money gambling. Um, you're depositing by way of our um, cashier service that allows you to deposit in local currency, utilizing a number of the most popular methods where you live. Uh, you Once you've established your deposit and we've gone through uh, a necessary step as it relates to regulation and compliance for us, which is ID verification, then you're able to start engaging with our products with your own money. Build and build a balance. Take advantage of some of the bonuses that we offer, and um, potentially um, potentially make more money than you started with. So, tell us a little about you know both the national and international esports betting landscape. I know it's you know really unique. And is there any differences between you know the one on one gamer battle kind of situation you were describing, and you know betting on outcomes of different matches, whether it's a CS:GO match or any of these things? Sure. Um, so first and foremost, um, I guess some kind of context setting. Um, betting on the international esports landscape has been around now for um, quite a few years. Um, but as you know, nascent and maturing as esports still is, so has um, so has been the the betting landscape for esports. Um, esports betting first really gained popularity when um, 
Counter-Strike skins were being used to uh, used as a you know unit for value that people were then wagering on outcomes in in matches. Obviously, not too long after that blew up, uh, Valve had changed the terms of service to really like crack down on that because it wasn't an intended use of game mechanics. But in the background and simultaneous, and after a number of different sites had popped up that were supporting esports betting, um, some of which were also supporting skill-based wagering, like I described, playing games yourself, and a lot of were just um, supporting fixed odds betting on uh, Counter-Strike, League of Legends, Dota. That said, in the years that this um, second form or adjacent form of entertainment to esports has been growing, uh, like a lot of things in esports, it's lacked infrastructure. And that infrastructure has typically existed, um, is uh, typically lacking in the area of regula- regulation and compliance. Esports has not been a licensable uh, gambling activity for very long. In fact, to this day, esports is still every day being under consider- consideration by markets around the world, different states in the US, for legalized betting. And that's just going to be a continue, continuous involvement for the, in, uh, for the next several years. But um, for the uh, last um, five, six years, there has been an audience for betting on esports. In recent years, sites like Unicorn and Rivalry and Midnight have come along and started to produce um, betting and wagering opportunities around esports and gaming that are um, licensed and or compliant or at least at a minimum offshore licensed. And that's really contributed to player safety while choosing to engage in this form of entertainment. And despite that reality, I think the audience of consumers around esports is still lacking in education on the differences between what's a site that they can go to where there's oversight and there's protection as it relates to their deposits and their withdrawals, the chance that they're ever going to see the money that they won. But that's something that we make a part of it. What we're doing every day is as much education as it is advertising our offering to the community. And then as it relates to the second part of your question, um, skill-based wagering, something that's interesting is the player versus player wager has been around for quite a while. In fact, early days of MLG game battles where you'd essentially go to a forum and identify that you want to play against somebody, uh, exchange a match ID, and then go join a lobby and compete for some money was something that was being done um, and not necessarily even treated as gambling until years later when regulations started popping up that identified, oh, that is kind of a skill base, that is a wagering activity, even if it's the skill-based type of wager, similar to poker. And um, that's why you're now starting to see that regulated. Um, But of course, we see players that engage across both skill, wagering, and betting directly on esports. However, there's also audiences that stick to one or the other, uh, we tend to find. So what are some of the hurdles that are, you know, kind of hinging it widespread adoption? I know there's obviously a well history of match fixing and other kind of anti-competitive issues in esports. Well, I think similar to anything positive you might be trying to do in esports, you're up against the fact that you probably have to build infrastructure for it yourself. And when we think about our approach to the esports space, we think about how to participate meaningfully. Um, create value for customers, extract the necessary value to profit so we can support our business, but then also give back to you know growing and building esports. So as we launch this um, kind of recent new chapter of Unicorn, one aspect of our strategy that we've been thinking about all, all along is how do we meaningfully participate with the tournament operators, the teams, the players, the and the games themselves so that we can help support the 
you know, sustainability of esports generally, provide a meaningful and positive form of entertainment for adult competitive gamers who, or uh, esports fans, and then um, properly, you know, properly uh, adhere to regulation and compliance as it relates to protecting those customers so that we can uh, have that support of what we're trying to do reciprocated. But just like my point earlier, it takes a lot of education and it's something that we're engaged in every day uh, to include uh, your, um, you know, your comment around uh, match fixing, which has been an issue in esports in the past and um, is still potentially an issue today. Like traditional gambling and wagering in the sports space, which had many more years to grow in maturity, um, I would hope to see over the coming years that esports adopts a better model of um, third-party watchdogs that protect against um, you know, integrity violations around competitive esports. Some of those already exist. One of those we're, of course, a member of, which is ESIC. Um, but as time goes on, it's going to take more than the gambling operator and the third party who's willing to be the objective um, investigator of these potentially harmful actions by players or um, betting activity that looks a little bit out of sorts that we flag for them so that they can look into. And it's also going to take the tournament operators themselves, whether it be a publisher or an independent tournament operator for Counter-Strike or Dota, also adhering to a bit of an open book as it relates to working with those third parties to ensure that the ecosystem has a bit of an equilibrium as it relates to no one supports um, match fixing. Everybody understands the value of getting it right, which is not solely about gambling, but definitely supports gambling. And a proper business can be built around all these like value exchanges. Absolutely. So over the last few years, we've really seen sports betting really grow in the U.S. and across the world. Do you think esports is going to take a similar voyage? And how long before we're going to see um, esports and every sports booking um, casino in Vegas and AC? Yeah, I think that um, I think it's fair to say that esports is already taking a similar voyage, um, but of course it's going to. Um, pop up and be more widespread where audience where our audience cares for it to be now, and that means that it's gained support in a lot of European countries. It's now steadily gaining support state by state in the U.S. Following suit with the repeal of the sports betting uh, restrictions and the licensing of a number of states and territories in the U.S., some states are currently looking at esports as another sport. So a lot of the same uh, rules and uh, restrictions apply. Some are considering an independent, different category. So they're taking a little bit more time to evaluate how they want to handle it. And some are not necessarily addressing it uh, directly, but as long as they are licensing a compliant operator, they support that operator having that category. Uh, whereas some states just say, no, we're not ready to support esports betting yet. There's too many variables to understand, but potentially in uh, the future. So that's happening in the U.S. today. And then as it relates to globally, um, where a number of countries have done taken a similar path in either supporting, not supporting, or just kind of taking their time to get there, um, you see more and more operators aiming to have regulated esports betting a part of their offering. But what's important to understand when you think about will it be in every sports book is um, potentially and probably as soon as it becomes a commoditized uh, adjacent experience to any sports book that probably also features sports or online casino, then why not? There's potentially a customer for it. For a lot of even sports betting customers, esports is just an adjacent activity on that same site that they could participate in if they have a little bit of interest. We actually saw during COVID that a lot of sports betting sites 
um, saw a significant draw to esports betting because esports is online, it's virtual, and it w- was not as phased by COVID as traditional physical sporting events. So there was a continuous content calendar when a number of sports around the world were canceled. Uh, some of those same sports books that did well with esports in COVID are still supporting it today. However, like I stated, it's it's for them mostly a kind of an adjacent offering for their existing existing customer base. Whereas for us, a unicorn, uh, we're esports and video games first. We're talking to a younger audience who's grown up with video games as an important aspect of kind of like their social culture. They share it with friends. They engage in it often. They're very digital native. And that means that we have to cater to their tastes and needs. So when I also think about the idea of finding esports in every physical sports book in the world, I think about, um, well, I don't know, is the audience that we that will care most about esports going to be in a physical space? And even if they are, are they going to walk up to a counter or a terminal? Or are they just going to pull out their phone and place their bet despite the fact they're in that space where there's a sports book and maybe they're just there to enjoy all the screens? I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. So, how can sports betting um, help? How can esports betting help the esports industry grow? Yeah. So, if you think about the esports industry uh, in its last um, ten plus years, it's always been challenged by uh, rising demand for content and the entertainment that surrounds um, esports. Um, it's been challenged by the cost to meet that demand. Uh, when balanced with the amount of revenue available from whether it's traditional sponsorship, media advertising, um, other forms of commercialization like merchandising, fan experiences. Uh, Some of that has to do with the fact that a lot of the way esports was set up and built, inclusive of what happened with Twitch and YouTube, immediately broke a lot of advertising norms in that it was not geo-restricted, it was free and available almost anywhere. That immediately breaks up the model of regional advertising, restricted um, restricted content behind paywalls. Uh, Why well, you can charge for it if everyone gets it for free? Right, exactly. And direct targeted media is only possible when you're restricting it enough that you could say, "Yep, this is the audience of that age, and this is and they're in that location." So your business that only operates in the Southwest United States can guarantee that it's going to spend its advertising dollars and only reach those customers. That's challenged by esports. So. If you look at it that way and you think the cost is currently outpacing the revenue, then you have to think about what are the other forms of direct consumer monetization that are possible in esports? Because there's no question that the fandom is there that supports this being a thriving industry. And one of those potential forms of direct consumer monetization for an adult user is um, healthy um, esports betting and wagering. Uh, And as long as it's done responsibly, and as long as all of the infrastructure that supports it, such as like passing rights and licensing, uh, sponsorship that directly goes back into supporting the events, content, and players is, um, is done at the same time, then it becomes a meaningful contributor to the ecosystem for esports. And that's really how we think about where we want to get with Unicorn. And um, that's why we're trying to engage as many other industry stakeholders as possible on our journey. Definitely. So what's the future for esports betting and gambling? You know, I think that um, I think the future for esports betting and wagerings uh, has a couple different potential outcomes. There's one where it becomes this really significant aspect of esports fandom for adult users who choose to casually uh, safely engage with it while, you know, tuning in and subscribing to their favorite players and, and teams and the events they play in. 
There's another aspect of it where um, skill-based wagering extended beyond some of just the top most competitive games, but to mobile games and other casual games just becomes a, a form of casual entertainment that's widely enjoyed and um, supports this genre of betting and wagering growth on its own. And then there's a um, there's a potential eventuality where going in esports and video games first as a betting and wagering site naturally puts you closer to a digital native audience who is made up of some heavily subscribed, really competitive gamers and esports fans and some casual gamers, but that's okay because it means we've spoken their language and we're um, providing a product offering that meets their expectations as it relates to user experience, how seamless it is, how it's integrated with the ways you want to cons- uh, consume content, utilize payment features, etc. And either either scenario uh, is one where a successful uh, business has grown, but it's really going to be up to um, the audience and um, you know what their taste looks like now and two years from now and four years from now. But we uh, we believe that. Um, without question, there is enough esports fandom and audience to support um, meaningful business creation around this form of entertainment. And while it might be going through a period of right sizing right now, um, that we can build a healthy and sustainable business that, that ultimately supports it getting back to its point of provenance, which uh, I think will eclipse where it's ever been. Absolutely. So definitely sounds like it's very bright. So kind of bringing this towards the end, what's advice for you have for anyone trying to work in the esports business? You know, I think the most uh, important thing to understand when uh, thinking about esports as a career choice is that esports is not necessarily uh, a job. Uh, it's it's an industry. It's a type of entertainment to be supporting. It's a uh, it's a category of um, working in video games, but the jobs that still support it are marketing, sales, business, finance, and uh, anybody who's looking to get involved in an esports job should be looking to acquire those skills, whether on the job or through schooling, of course. Um, and then separately, like any job field that you might be interested in, whether it's sports or Hollywood or esports, um, make connections, um, network on LinkedIn go to events and meet people because that is how a lot of people get jobs. Definitely. I think that's amazing advice. So what's your favorite part about working in esports and gaming? You know, I think that, um, I think I have two answers to that. I think, um, the, the first one, which has existed probably the longest for me is I've just been really drawn to this. Uh, I'm one, I'm a hardcore gamer. I've always been, I'm really drawn to the idea of who's the best in any game. And if that's uh, spiraled to create this whole form of entertainment that so many people are engaged in a lot like me, then I just like, I can't think of anything but celebrating it. So then wanting to, you know, help it do better, sustain, exist longer. Um, And then I would say, you know, the other kind of aspect, which I really experienced at Twitch is um, building uh, a business around Twitch, the product, and it's like extremely passionate community um, meant Every day that we kind of got to do something that nobody else had done before, every moderation decision, every partnership decision, business objective, path that we might go down with a strategy at Twitch was in some ways a world's first decision. And I think that keeps esports very exciting for me. And um, I'll continue to be excited as long as those things are a part of my job every day. And the good news is that's what we're kind of seeing at Unicorn as we're trying to build the first um, fully compliant 
um, well integrated across the ecosystem, esports betting and wagering operator that there's ever been. Amazing. So what's the future for Unicorn? Where do you go from here? Well, um, just a few months ago, we soft launched in Brazil and Canada minus Ontario. Um, those are places that were able to gain license by way of our parent company, Ente, and start up operations, uh, learn from our customers, uh, speak to them about where our products can go or should go, because ultimately they're the decision makers in that, um, that effort of the business. And, um, you know, trial and error as it relates to how to engage with our customers, how to get things right. We recently did a partnership, a small activation with Team Liquid in Brazil, which has gone really well for us. Now we get to think about how we scale doing things like that more globally. And as we feel that we've taken enough learnings in to then reproduce success elsewhere, we aim to launch as many countries around the world. Esports is very global. So that challenges initially what the gambling industry traditionally looks like, where it's very border by border, country by country, state by state. But we know that supporting this industry and this audience means that we have to get as global as possible, as fast as possible, which also allows us to authentically tell our industry stakeholders like tournament operators and teams and game publishers that, you know, we are meaningfully supporting our shared audience and they're very global um, counterparts to have. So we need to catch up. And that's what I, um, that's a lot of what our focus is at Unicorn today. Amazing. So we're definitely excited to see what else you guys are working on. So try to end each episode, my three questions. So what's your favorite game to play? My favorite game to play that I always go back to is uh, Counter-Strike. I might go sometimes months or a year without playing it, but it's the, um, whenever I have that feeling like I've wore out other games or I don't have interest in them, I'll fire up Counter-Strike. What's your favorite game to watch? Um, my favorite games to watch are a mix of Counter-Strike and fighting games. Who's your favorite video game character? Ooh, that's a really tough one. Um, I think my favorite video game character, and this is probably just nostalgic for me because I think the amount of hours that I played the game... <laughs> Uh, and the age I was at when, when I did was probably like Crash Bandicoot. Um, and I still think he's pretty cool and the remakes and stuff have been pretty cool. Amazing. So thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely insightful. So where can everybody connect with you and see what Unicorn is working on? Uh, well, you can find Unicorn at Unicorn Co. on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you find us there, you're likely to find me uh, poking around. But on most social platforms, I'm at JD Dell. Amazing. So thanks everybody again for tuning in and make sure to follow me on Twitter, Justin J E S Q and check Apple podcasts for all our episodes.